podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Simon Hughes and this is the analyst Inside Cricket. And I thought I'd bring you some sounds of the Caribbean to warm you up on a cold, damp English day. And I'll be looking back at England's first two one-day internationals here in Antigua with a legend of the West Indies game and master bass player Sir Kirtley Ambrose. And this is Simon Mann in London. You had to do it, Yozza, didn't you? You just had to do it. Just rub it in <laughs> for all those people back here in the UK. Also, as well, the day after you arrived in Antigua, you put a tweet out. Look, I'm going to open my curtains, you said. You pulled back the curtains, and there it was, the Caribbean Sea in all its glory, about 10 yards from your hotel room. Anyway, we're jealous. Of course we are, back here in the UK. What about the cricket, then, Simon? Um... What cricket? I've been to any cricket. What do you mean? I've been just been lying on the beach for three or four days. Well, that's that's normally what happens in the Caribbean. You don't do any work at all when you go out to to work for. Whoever. Actually, I, I might as well have let. In fact, I mean, for for all the value of those two games, really, I might as well have lay on the beach because I didn't feel that the standard of cricket was that high. I mean, England were fairly good, but the the, the West Indies, you know, there was a there was a piece in the Times last week. Uh, sort of re- reflecting on the West Indian players who won the World T20, and only one of them is is playing against England in this current series, Carlos Brathwaite. Everyone else has disappeared off into T20 hinterland, or is out of favour with the West Indies selectors, or has you know has decided to to pack in or whatever. And and so they've only got literally one player from that World T20 tournament, which ironically is Carlos Brathwaite. And Carlos Brathwaite is a pale shadow of the man who whacked Ben Stokes for four sixes. You know, he's averaging 13 in one-day internationals with the bat. His bowling is powder puff, kind of cannon fodder. He's a damn good fielder. But, I mean, you know, the one lingering player from that World T20 is probably the worst player that the West Indies have got. And, And they have got a couple of decent youngsters who could be promising in a couple of years and might be good. But now... They just really aren't posing much of a threat to England. I know England slightly messed up the run chase in the second game and and they were put under a bit of pressure by some good spin bowling, but it was more their own lack of nous and and slight kind of laziness that got them into that position rather than West Indies skill. That passage of play actually summed up England's whole winter, didn't it? As soon as the ball starts to turn a bit, they're under pressure. They lost those four quick wickets for, what was it, 16 runs, and and suddenly West Indies were on top. I thought, what well, I mean, West Indies obviously were hampered by the fact that Shannon Gabriel had a, had that side strain. But the fact that England won the game with a century partnership for the seventh wicket, even though they were under tremendous pressure, they lost. They were six wickets down. They still needed over 100 runs to win. The fact they won actually quite comfortably in the end. There didn't seem to be that much doubt from about 60, 70 runs out. I think just showed that just how many weaknesses there are. In this West Indies lineup, it looks a really thin side. You just look down their team, and there's just no no stars. There's no one you think, oh, he's going to hurt us, or he's going to hurt us. They just haven't got anybody. It's 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 really sad, and it's sort of compounded by the fact that you're in this stadium, which is named the Sir Vivian Richards International Stadium, and the ends are the Kirtley Ambrose end and the Andy Roberts end, and they turn up in the commentary box. It just reminded everyone how amazing that 
West Indies side of the, the 1980s was. And it must be quite intimidating, really, to be a, a West Indies player now uh, with those names sort of looming over you, both the, the, the names themselves and the figures sort of lingering around the game. And I, I don't know what they can do about it. And you, you mentioned about fast bowling. In fact, I, I did pose that question to both Andy Roberts and Kirtley Ambrose about why there aren't fast bowlers anymore in the Caribbean. And they said that it was to do, they thought, with wickets, firstly, slow pitches everywhere. But I mean, I think there were slow pitches in the past. But even more interestingly, both Kirtley and Andy Roberts said they think that the modern youth of the Caribbean are lazy. And you have to be hard-working and, and really resilient and determined to be a quick bowler. It's, it's, it's very tough on the body and you have to be super fit. And a lot of the Caribbean cricketers now are not prepared to do that. I read an interview with Johnny Grave, who's the new CEO of West Indies Cricket. And one thing he said, which encouraged me actually, was the fact that they're going to get a point of groundsman to go round to all the islands and try to improve the pitches, to get some pace back into the Caribbean pitches to encourage the fast bowlers again. I mean, it's noticeable, I mean, I've been there quite a few times now, it's noticeable that the pitches are so slow, they're, they're dead, and they do help the spinners, as Antigua did. But really, that, that's not what you associate with uh, with West Indies cricket. You, you associate fast bowlers, and perhaps that's what they need back. They need to get those pitches uh, helping the fast bowlers again, and that perhaps will encourage future West Indies teams, future West Indies players. I mean, if you, get, if you get a fast bowler or two firing, then you're, you're back in the game. If you've got someone taking wickets, knocking teams over, then that lifts, lifts the crowd as well. It excites the crowd. That's what they want to see. They want to see fast bowlers bowling. And um, I, I, I think I've probably got myself in private eye Coleman balls uh, this week because I said on commentary when talking about Jason Holder, with that huge size of body you want a lot more penetration um and I think I've been you know ridiculed about that uh, sort of ever since but um it's true you know you, you Jason Holder's a huge guy I mean he's six foot five and actually curtly said that he thought he could help him to get quicker by speeding up his run but they need some help from outside and you know so for so long really quite sadly the the great stars of that 1980s era have been a bit alienated from the current setup by rather blinkered administrators who don't see the value of bringing in this, uh, this this line of you know amazing names who surely have something to put back and something to offer and uh, maybe the, the the penny will drop at some point but it, it's sad to see a lot of these ex-players sort of rather alienated from the current setup. Do you sense that the current West Indies team, the current West Indian players are intimidated by the history, by you know, all the, the names, you know, the Savivian Richards Stadium, and yeah. you've got the Andy Roberts end and the Curtly Ambrose end. That, you know, they're always being told about the great teams, the great players of the past. I mean, it's, it's so difficult to live up to because they were such a fantastic side. They had so much talent, so much of it. That it actually, I wonder whether it's actually quite intimidating for the modern player. I think it is. I think it, it, it can only be quite daunting because the public, of course, judge the, the, the current cricketers on the people they remember from 20 years ago. A lot of the supporters are you know, 40, 50, 60 and would have watched those great teams of the 1980s and they set very high standards. And now those standards are not being attained any anything like, and therefore they're, they're well they're voting with their feet in their wallet and they're not turning up. The fifty dollar ticket for Antigua wooed about 
I don't know, 1,000, maybe 1,500 locals, but you think back to the 1980s and the Antiguan Recreation Ground, the smaller ground where all the, the great world records were set, you know, that was absolutely packed. It was bursting to the rafters. As I mentioned, uh, Kirtley Ambrose was actually part of the, the BBC commentary team for this uh, last couple of games, and it was, it was great to have him there. He, he, he still got the passion uh, and the enthusiasm for talking about the game. It's, it's, it's a relief, actually, not to have to contemplate facing him. I know people think I'm a crap batsman, but I only ever got one pair in the whole of my career, and it was afflicted on me by Kirtley, who, uh, in the second innings of a, a match between Durham and Northants, just bowled this absolute snorter at me first ball. And in the first innings, I dragged the one on, trying to score quick runs for a declaration and got naught. And so in the second innings, I had to try and save the game with Kirtley on fire. And he just bowled a good length ball at me first ball. It took off, went straight from my head, and I punched it to gully. And I was caught. And that was the only pair of my career. And you know what happened after that? No, go on. You tell us. I retired. <laughs> so he he forced me into he forced me into retirement. Kirtley Ambrose was it scary facing him? It was very difficult to play, even for a, a mortal. I mean, I batted against him in one game with Dean Jones at the other end playing for Durham, and it was it was fantastic watching their duel. Kirtley hated Dean Jones for that famous time when he asked him to take his sweatbands off, and he then reacted by taking five for one in about two overs. And Jones and, and, and Ambrose, as a result, had this, this real feisty duel every time they came up against each other. And Ambrose was desperate to get Jones out in this game. It was at Stockton, of all places. Jones v Ambrose, you know, two giants of the game at some kind of funny little club ground in the middle of the northeast. But Ambrose was tearing into bowl and Jones was jumping on, onto, onto his toes or sort of jumping into mid-air and managing to flash balls backward of, of point on the offside and maybe getting three or the occasional boundary and sometimes a thick edge down to third man. And then then I was on strike, number nine. And I was getting the same balls for Ambrose, looming down at you, this absolute giant. And then the, there was this brief moment when you saw the ball come out of his hand with that incredible wrist action and then it just disappeared. And then it reappeared in front of your face or you know in front of your chest. It pitched around a, a goodish length for most bowlers, but because of his pace and his height and his, his brilliant coordination, it, it ended up at chest high or even higher, and all I could do was duck or flinch or weave or just let it hit me. We, we, Jones and I put on about 87 that day, and I think I got about four, and I was scared for my life most of the time. Well, as Fred Truman used to say, we're wasted on thee, lad. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It was, it was, it was a horrible experience, but fascinating all the same. But, um, you know, as I say, it was, it was great to sit next to him in the commentary box and not, not have to face him. And what we talked about a bit was not only cricket, but music. His love of music, it really shines through. Uh, he's been now playing uh, in a band for best part of 20 years. In fact... I remember when Brian Lara broke the world record the first time, 375, not out in Antigua in 1994, and I was at, I was at that game. And Kirtley and, and Richie Richardson played a, a, in a band that night, and a party went on till about three in the morning at the old ground in Antigua, and Kirtley was there strumming his bass, and he's still doing it 20-odd years later with Richie Richardson. They, uh, they're all on tour virtually 
in the in the uh, in the Antiguan sort of beach bars around the place in the last couple of weeks. I love it. first learned to play the bass or did, did you start playing another instrument? No, it's always the bass. I've always been fascinated with a bass player and the instrument itself and I believe that no band can exist without a bass and one, we toured England one year one, and uh, Richie and I, because Richie has always been playing guitar from a very very early age so at the end of a day's play we used to like, we used to be roommates before he became captain so just to unwind from international cricket and all that stuff, he used to strum on his guitar, and I used to do a little singing, I hit the table for like a drum, and just to, just to relax ourselves. And one day I said to him, I'm going to buy me a bass guitar. I've never played the instrument before, knows nothing about it, but I just admire a bass player and the instrument. So we were in Birmingham, and coincidentally we were staying right close to a music shop. So Richard and I went around the corner, and I bought the bass guitar, and that's how it all started which started to show me what notes and that kind of thing. So that's how it started. And it just got better and better from there. Then I bought myself some books about bass and DVDs and stuff so I could educate myself along the way. So it started very simple, and I've improved a lot. Do you actually enjoy playing music more than you enjoyed fast bowling? Well, it's, it's, it's different. It is totally different. First of all, cricket was my job. So I had to do it and be the best professional and be the best at it. Music is different. It's, well, it's, it's a lot easier on the body, I can tell you that. You know, and it's a lot more fun in terms of entertainment. Because it's, it's, I find in music, the hardest part of music for me is the rehearsals. Because you know, you've got to keep going over songs and getting it right, the intros, the outros, and something it can be frustrating when you're not getting you know, the bass lines correctly. So that to me is the hardest part of music. Once you've gone through that and hit the stage, you would have been prepared so much. So it's all about having fun and executing all that hard work in the band house. Just, just moving on to cricket for, for a moment. So West Indies cricket, we're looking at some younger players performing. Do you feel they have some potential? They do have the potential. It was never a question of talent. We've always had talented players. For me, there are a few things missing. Yes, they are a young team at the moment. Jason Holder is our captain, and he's played 50 ODIs, and he's a more senior. So that tells you how inexperienced the team is. But apart from the talent and the potential of becoming great players, there are a few things missing, in my opinion. The guys are not patient enough. They, they seem like they're not willing to work hard enough at their game to improve. And obviously... It's difficult to, to really have your best and strongest team because of all these lucrative T20 tournaments around the world. Most of the top players kept going to these tournaments and not playing for the West Indies. So it's difficult. It's really difficult. Plus, we never have an inexperienced team like this. They're all learning on the job. There are not, not enough senior players to nurture the younger talent, and that has been an issue for many years. What would you do about the fact that players are tempted away to play in all these other T20 tournaments. What would you do if you were the chief executive now of, of the West Indies board? How can they change the situation? Well, obviously, the West Indies cricket board can't really compete 
in terms of finances with some of these lucrative T20 tournaments. And the kind of money these guys are making is always a tempting offer. However, according to the, the rules and regulations of the board, players must make themselves available to play in regional competitions in order to be eligible for selection for the different formats. Most of the guys don't play, so they're not selected. What I believe, you shouldn't stop a player from earning money. This is his job. But what I'm saying, they need to be a little more flexible, meaning that I'm not saying guys just go off, don't compete in a regional tournament, and they're selected. That is unfair to the guys who stay back. But you got to be a little more flexible, meaning, okay, I'll give you a window, you can go and play X amount of games, but you got to come back and play X amount of games in the region. So if you do that, I believe that you get most of the players playing at home. So you sense that the people like Chris Gale, Dwayne Bravo, Sonny on the Rhine, you know, players like that, they, would, they can be tempted back to play for the West Indies. I believe so, because they've always said that they want to represent the West Indies. But the way things are now is kind of difficult you know, so obviously, I mean, they're going to go ways more lucrative because if they're treated, they're not, they don't believe they're treated with enough respect. So they prefer to go on, you know. So I believe the board is a little more flexible. I believe you'll see more of the top players here playing for the West Indies. So that was Curtly Ambrose just saying that really the West Indies board have got to be more open-minded and allow these players to, to slot in these T20 tournaments because they're very lucrative, but also try and accommodate them in the West Indies team, not take umbrage when they go off and play in these leagues around the world to try and accommodate their, their wishes because you know they are ultimately professional cricketers. They've got to earn their living. But they need to find a way of, of restoring a pride in the West Indies name as well and encouraging them to play for the West Indies so that they have a, a, a dual life. They can earn their money abroad but also earn their prestige playing for the West Indies. Of course, uh, times have changed in England as well. Now, there was a time when English players were not allowed or not encouraged to play in the IPL and in T20 leagues abroad. That's completely changed now, mainly because England see the importance of doing well in white ball cricket the Champions Trophy this summer, the World Cup in, in 2019. They, they see, I think, the impact as well that the T20 final had last year when England so nearly won. It hadn't been for that amazing batting from Brathwaite at the end against Stokes. They, they see the value. They want the players to play in the tournaments now because they think they'll improve. They'll, they think they'll become better players. And also as well, I mean, the players want to play as well players learn. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? It comes back to Kevin Peterson's point all those years ago saying, you know, it, it's important for us to play in the IPL. It's, it's come full circle now because Andrew Strauss, who was sort of against Peterson going to play in the IPL when he was England captain, now is in, encouraging players to go and, and play there, you know, as the managing director of England cricket. And, and you can see the, the benefit of uh, of the experience that they've already had in, in IPL cricket. In fact, obviously Joss Butler's had a, a disappointing winter post-Christmas, but the other players, people like Jason Roy and Sam Billings, you know, who've played in the... Obviously Owen Morgan's going from strength to strength at the moment. And it's just lots of scenarios that they encounter in all these T20 matches, which enable them to, to deal with situations... 
Chris Wokes, of course, has been signed in the IPL for half a million. And, and actually, I think he's proving to be an inspired signing because you know that innings he played the other day was, was calm. It was very composed. It was controlled. It was skillful. I thought he should have been man of the match uh, in partnership with Joe Root. And England are, are just looking you know, so deep in their, uh, well, certainly in their batting. Their fielding has been classy again. There was a lovely uh, moment, actually, which I thought underlined the difference between the West Indies and England in this, in this last couple of games, when Jason Roy caught one, and just as he was about to go over the boundary, just flicked it to, to Sam Billings, a nice simple piece of catching relay work, which the West Indies failed to do when, in the previous game, Craig Brathwaite took a catch on the boundary and just sort of wandered over the line with the ball. A very unsophisticated piece of fielding, which is really what sums up the West Indies in one-day cricket at the moment. Well, that's West Indies against England. I think before we go, we should touch on another compelling test match being played between India and Australia. Anything we say will be out of date, except to say the first three days have been absolutely magnificent. Cut and thrust, brilliant cricket, Every ball vital, real tension in the game, and also an indication that Australia seem to be getting themselves back together again with the Ashes coming up late this year. They had that chastening series defeat against South Africa. They came back well against Pakistan because they won the first test against India. But they, they do look uh, a developing unit. Of course, spin won't be such a big factor in the Ashes and, and their spin bowlers have been dominating and doing well in India, but they do look to have their, their mojo back again. And while we're on the subcontinent, uh, perhaps we should end with our highlight low line. And we, we could combine them this week. Uh, the Pakistan Super League 2020 final was played in Lahore on Sunday, which is, you know, it's got to be a highlight. International players going back to play cricket in Pakistan. It was a the big crowd was there and I think it was seen as a success. There were no incidents. But low light has got to be the fact that to get the players there, there were really intense security operations put into place. The players were taken to the ground in bulletproof buses. There were thousands of security personnel around the ground. The hall was basically in lockdown. But they, they did get some foreign, some international players there, the likes of Darren Sammy and Marlon Samuels, Chris Jordan, who played on the, the winning side, as did Middlesex's Dawad Milan. And there's talk of playing a, a T20 series between Pakistan and an international level in September. Obviously, they'll have to make it worth their while to go there. So encouraging signs for Pakistan. I mean, it's, it's terribly sad. Of course it is that international cricket is not being played in Pakistan. But you can understand why it's not. And if you've got to have those sort of security arrangements in place to get international cricketers to Pakistan, then it, it does raise questions about its viability. It's got to. I suppose uh, that in the end, probably some of the local players are probably happier playing in Dubai as well, although they, they, they obviously are apart from their families a lot longer. Just the fact that you know they're secure in a place like Dubai. And uh, Dean Jones was saying that the crowds in the in the the sort of group matches were were pretty good, and the environment's excellent, and the cricket's pretty impressive. So, I, I guess that you know the future of Pakistan cricket, certainly short term, is still going to be in the Middle East. But one hopes that the security situation in the next five to ten years might improve gradually. Perhaps in the next decade, we'll see cricket back in Pakistan, international cricket, but. 
I guess not for not for the foreseeable future. Well, thanks very much, Simon, for for keeping your eye on on the world for us while we're loitering in the in the Caribbean. Please leave a review on iTunes and tell us what you think. You can also write to us on Twitter at the analyst or at cricket underscore man with a double N. We'll be back next week. Well, I'm having to come back to London next week, which is going to be a right old pain. Uh, so I'm nipping off now to to get my pina colada. All right. Goodbye, Simon. Look forward to seeing you in rainy old London next week. Thanks for listening. Sports Social Podcast Network.